Welcome to Dictatorum, episode 1.10, Libya Still Suffers, and Gaddafi's Oddities. Last time on Dictatorum, we experienced Muammar Gaddafi's downfall at the hands of the people he claimed to have championed for more than 40 years. In this episode, we'll take a look at some of the things that made Gaddafi truly unique, and examine what's been happening in Libya since his downfall. Gaddafi brought so much to a Libya struggling to find itself after independence, to include healthcare, housing, infrastructure, a presence on the world stage, and more. But mostly what he brought was his own personality. His revolution promised to put an end to the patronage networks set up by King Idris, but instead Gaddafi created his own patronage networks. Those loyal to his regime got the best perks, while the everyday Joe had to struggle to survive in the Arab Socialist Republic that was governed by the Green Book. Let's talk about some of Gaddafi's behavior. The man was, without mincing words, just weird. When he traveled to England for military training in the 1960s, he'd go walking around central London in traditional Arab dress. It was his way of raising a flag to both draw attention to himself and to show how proud he was of being a Bedouin. It's a trend we see throughout his life. Unlike most world leaders, Gaddafi wasn't often seen in suits, but in stylish Arab robes. When he wanted time to decompress, he'd go out to the desert for weeks on end and live in a tent, spending his days in prayer and hunting. When he traveled abroad on official business, he often stayed in his own tents, set up in the garden of a hotel or park, as if it was totally normal for someone to skip a hotel and live in a tent. After 9-11, when he came to New York City to speak at the UN, Gaddafi tried to do just that. He brought his tent with him and set it up on a property owned by now U.S. President Donald Trump. He didn't actually get to stay in the tent, but it just goes to show the kind of antics he was up to. On a separate occasion, he invited then-Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice for a visit to his tent while she was in Libya on business. While she was there, Gaddafi produced a scrapbook with photos of her posing with world leaders set to a song produced by a Libyan composer. Just a little bit creepy, you know? Gaddafi was also afraid of long-distance flying, and he would make stops just so he didn't have to fly more than eight hours at a time. Jeez. In his later years, Gaddafi was known to have both a female bodyguard unit, and for lack of a better term, a harem. These two entities were not mutually exclusive. It's reported that his main female bodyguard was in charge of finding and quote-unquote recruiting young women to join the unit, colloquially known as the Amazons. The Amazons supposedly received extensive weapons and combat training and almost always accompanied Gaddafi on official business. Unfortunately, there have been reports that these women were routinely raped by Gaddafi and his senior officials. Not only that, but Gaddafi employed a Ukrainian nurse named Galina Kolotnitska, which one U.S. State Department cable described as a voluptuous blonde who constantly traveled with the colonel. She might have been his nurse, she might have been his mistress, but she routinely denied that, uh, ever having a personal relationship with the colonel. Kolotnitska fled Libya pretty soon after the start of the revolution and settled back in Ukraine after being denied asylum in Norway. It seems the brother leader had a penchant for surrounding himself with beautiful women. 
Another oddity of the Gaddafi era was one of the economic projects he tried to launch in 1999. As we talked about before, Libya became a welfare state during the Gaddafi years, and that included providing its citizens with cars. But in turn, road fatalities were one of the top killers in Libya during this time. And the colonel tried to remedy the situation in a unique manner. He had a car designed to be the safest car on the road, called the Rocket. The Rocket was equipped with quote-unquote state-of-the-art safety features like airbags, fuel tank cutoff in case of an accident, run-flat tires, and it had a pointy front and rear end. The idea was that the rocket could reduce the impact from head-on and rear collisions by using this pointed shape to deflect the other car. Um, no one apparently ever told Gaddafi that these state-of-the-art features had been employed for decades in other cars all across the world, and that the wedge-shaped bumpers would not really do anything to stop an accident. But when no one's actually allowed to tell you that your ideas are crazy, you lose touch with reality. Another story I want to touch upon involves an unfortunate incident that took place in Libya between the late 90s and 2007, the HIV trial. In 1999, a Palestinian doctor and seven Bulgarian medical personnel were arrested on charges that they had deliberately infected more than 400 children with HIV in the El Fati Children's Hospital in Benghazi. This is the largest single outbreak of HIV in world history, and it was a scandal in Libya, which before this had low infection rates. The principal subject of the investigation was Palestinian Dr. Ashraf Ahmad al-Hajjuj, whom the Libyan security apparatus accused of being a criminal mastermind working for unspecified foreign governments to destabilize Libya. The Bulgarians worked for this doctor, and they were all arrested in February of 99. Confessions were obtained after the extensive use of torture to include electric shock procedures and threats against their families. Look, I can understand foreign governments might want to destabilize Libya. I mean, Gaddafi certainly didn't have many friends in the West, especially after Lockerbie. But infecting kids with HIV? Come on. Independent investigations allege that the HIV infections were present before these foreigners started working at the hospital. Although Libya had done a lot to increase access to medical treatment, the medical system during the Gaddafi years was chronically understaffed, it didn't have supplies, and was lax in its standards. It's almost certain that these kids received some tainted blood transfusions, got an injection with reused needles, or something like that. Most of the Bulgarians in Hal Shajuj were convicted and sentenced to death in 2004 after being forced to confess under torture. An appeal in 2007 once again found the defendants guilty, but commuted their sentences to life in prison. Backdoor negotiations with the European Union ended up with Gaddafi agreeing to release the personnel. It's been alleged that they were released after France concluded several contracts for military equipment international cooperation, and humanitarian aid to Libya, which the French government vehemently denied at the time. In any case, the Bulgarians and the Palestinian doctor, who had been granted Bulgarian citizenship, were flown out of Libya in July 2007 to serve out their sentences in their home country. Upon landing in the Bulgarian capital, the prisoners were promptly pardoned by Bulgarian President Georgi Pervanov.
Now let's talk about the fallout from Gaddafi's death. 42 years of an iron grip ended in a bloodbath that itself has not yet reached a conclusion. After Gaddafi was killed in October 2011, the NTC became the legitimate government in both name and law. Laws were passed to grant immunity to rebel fighters who might have committed atrocities during the fighting, as were laws prohibiting things like Gaddafi's Green Book and other regime propaganda. The new government sought out all the international help it could muster to get itself running and to get the oil refineries back online. People were now more free than they'd ever been in Libya. Political parties could now organize in the open, and no one had to fear Gaddafi's secret police. But there was another darker side to the killing of Gaddafi. Tribal and regional rivalries that had been quashed for generations were now unleashed, and former allies soon began fighting each other to settle scores or to gain influence. The NTC struggled to keep this violence under control and eventually held elections in 2012 that resulted in the formation of a government called the Government of National Accord, or GNA. Two years later, though, Libya found itself in the midst of another civil war, pitting two major factions against each other. The GNA, which is universally recognized by the United Nations, controls Tripoli, while the Libyan National Army, which split off from the GNA, controls much of the rest of the country. Now the LNA is controlled by former Gaddafi strongman turned CIA asset Khalifa Haftar. Remember that guy? He got captured in Chad in the 80s and then became a CIA asset? Yeah, that one. Another element, Islamist militancy, has also reared its head in Libya. After Gaddafi's defeat, Lots of Libyan fighters went to Syria to fight uh, Bashar al-Assad. They became radicalized and they came home. By late 2014, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, made huge inroads into Libya that was still struggling to get itself into working order. They took over Sirta in early 2015, declaring it to be part of their caliphate, as well as parts of Benghazi, Derna, and Sabratha. Khalifa Haftar's LNA, with the aid of coalition forces, has gradually pushed ISIS out of most of these territorial holdings. But it wasn't cleared out of Sirta until late 2016, and the group still has a significant presence in the country, although attacks are now more kind of low level. As the threat from ISIS has kind of diminished, Haftar and the LMA have turned their attention back to capturing Tripoli. The situation's chaotic and hard to follow, but multiple foreign nations have also gotten involved in both sides of the conflict. Haftar is now supported by the Russian mercenary group Wagner, while the GNA is supported by the Turkish military, both of whom have troops on the ground in the country. Independent regional, tribal, and factional militias also hold territory, especially in Fazan. Until the spring of 2020, Haftar has had the upper hand in the fighting, but the GNA's Turkish reinforcements have made significant headway in relieving the pressure on Tripoli. It seems there's no peaceful solution to the conflict in sight, and ordinary Libyans have been suffering since the initial uprising. In a whole, Gaddafi's reign was a mixed bag for Libya. Education, healthcare, infrastructure, and the oil industry all saw big gains in Libya. The quality of life for ordinary Libyans also saw a big jump, 
but these gains were gradually eroded as Libya became North Africa's pariah state in the 1980s and 90s. The relative political stability under Gaddafi has given way to civil war and lawlessness. Warring factions, Islamist insurgencies, and blatant corruption are holding the Libyan people hostage as of the writing of this podcast. Join me next time as we travel across the Mediterranean Sea and into the Balkan Peninsula to look at one of the most brutal dictators in post-World War II Europe, Romania's Nicolae Ceausescu.